Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. I know that many of you have been waiting for several months to hear this particular story. Tonight's speaker is Pat Tippins, and she was originally scheduled to be one of our live event speakers back in April. But with the pandemic shutdown, we had to cancel the event. The blessing within that is that this podcast was started. And I am so excited that we are now on our 25th episode and have had over 5,000 downloads from all over the United States and many other countries as well. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this with other ladies in your life. Thank you for following our Facebook page and for giving ratings and reviews. This has really been such a special journey. And we have no plans to stop the podcast version of Story Night. But after a lot of prayer and consideration, our team was able to host the first live Story Night event since the pandemic hit. Two weeks ago, we met outside, spread out, and were blessed to hear Pat's story. Before I play the recording, I wanted to share with you her promotional video in audio form. I have a story. It's a story about choices. Some good, some bad. Some with lifetime implications some eternal. It's a story of redemption. Much like a beautiful patchwork quilt created by God. At times, it was necessary for him to discard the torn, frayed, and damaged pieces. But always healing, replacing those parts with his beauty and grace weaving his golden thread throughout. I have a story. She most certainly does have a story, and I'm so excited to share it with you tonight. We're going to pick up the recording after the welcome and announcements and start with a beautiful song performed by McKenna Carlson. Sometimes on this journey I get lost in my mistakes What looks to me like weakness is a canvas for your strength And my story isn't over, my story's just begun Failure won't define me cause that's what my father does Yeah, failure won't define burdens down here in the father's house check your shame at the door it ain't welcome anymore you're in the father's house Not the 
journeys where you are You never want it perfect You just wanted my heart And the story isn't over If the story isn't good A failure's never final When the father's in the room A failure's never final When the That was incredible. And I hope that those words just really resonate with each one of you that we're outside, but we're in the Father's house. And I hope you can just check everything else aside for this evening. Any anxiety, any fear, any frustration, anything that's going on in your personal life or the the global scale, that you can set it aside and just come be here, be among the trees, be with fellow women hear the music, and hear the story. We have really simplified this event, and it's still so good. And I just want to thank you for 
being here and thank everyone for being a part of this. And before our amazing speaker, Pat, comes up, She's actually going to be introduced by a dear friend of hers, and I think a lot of you may know her. So I'd like to invite Marlene to come up and give us a little introduction of our very spicy and fabulous Pat. Well, I'm glad to be here. I recognize a lot of people. There's some new friends and some old ones. So I have known Pat for about 10 years, and Pat and Dennis came to the church And when they walked through the door and I asked her who she was and trying to get to know her, they were looking for a church that lifted up Jesus and and preached the word. And I said, I think you're in the right place. And right away, there was just something about Pat. I felt close to her. and I I just knew she was going to be my friend. I just had that feeling. And I was right about that. And here we are 10 years later. It seems like longer when you have a good friend. So it wasn't much long later, and I invited her to ladies' Bible study because that's kind of one of the things I was in charge of when we were here at the church. And Pat came right away and was excited to do that. And I noticed she had such a love and friendliness, and she wanted to get to know the ladies. And she loved studying the Bible and was very serious about it. And just right away, we were kindred spirits, so to speak. That's what I like to think, is we were kindred spirits, and we both like so much of the same things. So it was uh, it was a friendship meant to be, you might say. So as time clipped along, we were in several Bible studies together, and uh, the studies started growing, and they were so big we broke ladies into groups. Well, one of the gals went to work full-time, So I was out of a group leader, and we needed someone else. So I went home and told my husband, and he said, whatever you do, pick someone who's already there, who's already invested in in the women, who already enjoys the Bible study and has relationships. And I said, that's very sound advice. So I got out the list and looked at people and contemplated it and couldn't figure out what to do and said my prayers like we do. And, And pretty soon, Pat, Tippin's name was just blinking <laughs> with red lights. And so I thought, I think she would be the one. So I went and showed it to Ron. I said, look at this list, and who do you think would be one of the ladies that's that's presently on this list that would be good? And he looked and did the same thing I do, read it over and contemplated. And he said, I think Pat Tippins would be good. And I go, wow, isn't that great? Both of us came to the same conclusion. So it was meant to be. So uh, as time clipped along and we had several studies, I just noticed how Pat um, had such good relationships with a lot of the ladies. She is a friendly gal, and she had a lot of empathy. And I'm one to believe that things that happen in our lives um, are all all kind of coalesce together. The Lord knows where we're at, what we do, what we like, the gifts that we have, and it just kind of happens together. And it's kind of like a, a training ground. The things that we do in our life, it could be your career or your likes or gifts that you believe God has given you. It's kind of our training ground for who we are and maybe what's meant to be if you want to help people or minister to people later in life. 
So I felt like that, that leading Bible studies and leading groups is challenging. It's not, not everybody is just a natural at it. And so I, I see today Pat has many relationships. She mentors people and cares about ladies and where they're at in life. And she reaches out with a friendship, love, and acceptance. And that is just, those are all precious gifts. And she's done that with me, and I'd hope to say I do that with her. So it's interesting because we, we're no longer going to this church, but you still miss all those people that you had that close friendship with and fellowship time. And um, I would say for me, and maybe Pat would say the same, I don't know, um, the closest people I have are those I was in Bible study with because you meet with them every week and you study the word and pray together. You get your friendships. That's who you go out to lunch with and, and who you have compassion and love and acceptance for. So that, that's how it worked for me. And Pat was kind of that way. And we still meet for coffee. We still meet for lunch. She had me over for her fabulous, uh, coffee and scones that she makes from scratch just this week. So I'm glad to keep up friendships that really mean a lot. Uh, just because you're in a different place or a different church doesn't mean you give up the friends that you've, that you have nurtured over, over time. So if you don't know Pat, or you think you know her, <laughs> you just might be surprised. Sit back and listen. My friend, Pat Tippins. <laughs> Call Marlene my little chipmunk friend because she's short and she's got those cute little rosy cheeks and she just giggles. Everything makes her giggle. Before we get started, I've already felt myself cracking emotionally tonight. So if I get to the point where I'm getting weepy or I'm getting, my voice is getting strained because I'm about to cry, someone yell, stop it. Not you, honey. Someone yell, stop it. And that will bring me back. Not you either, dear. <laughs> my daughter and my husband are here and they know better than to talk to me like that. So to get started... When Jessica asked me if I would share my story, lo, these many months ago, I said, sure, yeah, I'll share my story, no big deal, no problem. And then I went home and I thought about my story and I thought, have you completely lost your mind? I can't go in front of these women and tell them about my past. Some of the stuff my kids haven't even heard or my husband and my pastor. What am I thinking? So... I went and I talked to some friends, some of my sisters in the Lord, and they said, you absolutely need to share your story because there's someone out there that needs to hear it. So if you're out there tonight and you need to hear this, listen up. I was born, my story begins, in Chillicothe, Ohio in 1953. You can put your calculators away, I'm 67 years old. I was born into a family of four children. I have an older brother, an older sister, and a younger sister. When I was six years old, we moved to Southern California, and that's where I grew up. I grew up in a sometimes Christian home. I say sometimes because my father was a functioning alcoholic. He could put a roof over our head. He could put food on the table and clothes on our back. But when the weekends came, my father was drunk, and he was a mean, raving drunk. My sisters and I knew how to get out of his way, but my brother didn't. And many times, my father's raving was directed at my brother. 
My brother was born mentally retarded. There were times that I stood behind my bedroom door, begging God to make the fighting and the beating stop. And it did, until the next time. I don't remember that my parents ever mentioned a medical diagnosis for my brother's mental, mental disorder, but I believe it was genetic because both parents had mentally retarded brothers. My mother was a very docile, quiet woman. She had very little education, being forced to quit school at an early age to take care of her own mentally disabled brother. She depended entirely upon my father. She never drove, nor did she have a driver's license. I've often felt that my mother had very little choice in the life that she had. This was never verbalized, but there was something almost resigned about her. Anyway, if you were to ask me where my mother was during my father's drunken rages and how she was reacting to him, I couldn't tell you, perhaps because I was hiding myself. I loved my mother, and I always wished that I could be more like her in the way she submitted to my father, but that gene skipped me. My maternal grandfather was a minister. Perhaps growing up in that household shaped my mother's attitudes toward marriage and submission. When I was old enough to drive, I would take her places that my father had no time for, like shopping and lunch. Those were good times. My father's drunken binges would last for about two to three years, and then for no apparent reason, he would stop drinking, load us into the car, and off to church we would go. And this would last for another two to three years, just long enough for us, just long enough time for us to make friends or bond with a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor. And then for no apparent reason, my father would fall off the wagon and we would stop going to church and the binging and the raving would start again. Now I need to stop here and tell you that my father was not a bad man. He was just a man tortured by his own demons. And the only way that he could silence the voice of those demons was to drink get drunk enough that he couldn't hear their voices. But the lesson that I learned from those cycles was that God was impotent. He wasn't he was incapable of curing my father's alcoholism or protecting us. I decided as I grew that I wanted nothing to do with God or church, and thus the seeds of my rebellion were planted. My childhood was not all bad, and during my father's dry times he showed us love. My father worked a swing shift on Friday and he would bring home donuts. We didn't wait until morning for those donuts. When he got home at midnight, we were there waiting for the donuts. When I was eight years old, in second grade, I contracted hepatitis B and nearly died. During the months of my illness, my father knelt beside my bed and begged God for my life. When I was 13, I fell into the rapids at the Kern River in California. My father was the one who didn't hesitate to jump in and save me. Fourteen people lost their lives in that river that year. We took family vacations that were road trips from California to Ohio, and we would take these trips about every three years, and each time my father would map out a different course so that we got to see different parts of the country. This gave me a wonderlust I still have today, and Dennis and I have taken many such trips and look forward to our road trips. Growing up, I shared a bedroom with my older sister until she married, and then my younger sister moved into my room and I loved to play pranks on her. She was so naive and gullible. We had twin beds, and she liked to come into the bedroom in the dark and fall backward onto her bed. So one night I moved her bed. <laughs> we didn't have carpet. We had linoleum laid on a concrete slab. I, of course, was laying in the bed, stifling laughter, waiting for her to come in. When she came in and she fell back and she hit the floor, it sounded like someone cracked a walnut. 
I jumped up, turned on the light, and when she came to and started screaming and my mother came in, I just knew my life was over. My mom was too concerned about whether she had a concussion or not to ask why the bed was moved. I dodged that bullet. I played many such tricks on her, but not quite that bad. Growing up in the 60s was great. We walked to and from school with groups of friends, planning our summer adventures, and when summer came, we would take off after breakfast, and we didn't come home until after dinner time. We had no cell phones, no worries about being abducted or molested. Those words weren't even in our vocabulary then. My mom knew where I was, and if she, and if she needed me, she could find me, but she rarely did. We had a huge field behind our house with a deep trench dug down the middle of it. Uh, to control rain runoff. This area became our wonderland. We built forts and bridges across that ditch. We were the rulers of our kingdom and we loved it. We had no idea what was going on in Vietnam or with the summer of love. We were content with our little piece of heaven. I've longed for the simplicity of those times over the turbulent years of my life. As I entered high school, I began to attend parties and as a sophomore, I began to experiment with alcohol. It wasn't until my junior year that I began to experiment with drugs and sex as well. I was promiscuous, and my promiscuity was fueled by the drugs and alcohol, which lowers your inhibitions. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. My older sister lived in Costa Mesa and often invited me to spend the weekends with her and her family, and she would take me to church. I would go, but I was shut down. None of it held anything for me. She never pushed and whenever there was a Christian women's gathering or a retreat, she would invite me, and if there wasn't a party or friends to hang out with, I would go. I love my big sister, and I loved to spend time with her. She knew that I was in trouble, and so she made sure she would expose me to all the positives and experiences that she could. I know that her prayers for me were what kept me safe many times, and those prayers eventually led me to make a decision to follow Christ. Never underestimate the power of the prayers for your loved ones. I don't want applause when somebody says, stop it. But thank you for the applause. <laughs> In my junior year of high school, I met a bad boy. He was everything my other friends were not. He taught me things that no 17-year-old should know. I was always chubby, and he began to ask me to lose weight. It was then that he introduced me to amphetamines. This began an addiction that would last off and on for nearly 15 years of my life. His rebellion against authority was inspiring to me, and I admired his guts in standing up to anyone that opposed him, including his father, who was very abusive. He had lost his mother a few years before, and I felt sorry for him. I believed that if I loved him enough, I could fill that hole in his heart over the loss of his mother. As I approached my senior year, I began to apply to different colleges, and when I came home and told my parents that I was doing this, my dad told me he was not paying for college and I better get a job. I knew that working in the local burger joint wasn't going to do it, and I knew nothing about student loans or grants, and so after high school, I married my bad boy sweetheart. The first year was great. We were in love. We had moved away from our parents and into our first apartment. We began to build a life together, and our future looked bright. We decided to look into purchasing a house. Because of the way in which his mother had died, there had been a lawsuit, and my husband was to receive an inheritance his father would have to be involved in the purchase of our home. Because of this, there was friction between my husband and I, and so we began to fight. He didn't begin to hit me at first, but as this, the fights escalated, he pushed me, and he slapped me across the face. The physical pain is nothing 
It's the emotional pain that hurts when you're slapped across the face by someone who loves you or says they love you. It's the demeaning way you're left to feel. Eventually, he began to beat me. I learned later that he was talking to his father about our fights, and his father told him, you need to get your wife in line. You need to beat her into submission. Now, I need to clarify something. I was not a cowering, trembling, frightened little girl. I became harder and tougher with each beating. I was mouthy and loud, and I wanted him to know that he couldn't hurt me. In fact, it had gotten to the point that I was pushing him to hit me. So through much pain and fighting, we eventually bought our first home. We worked full-time jobs and drank or got high on the weekends. It was about this time that I began to experience some severe abdominal pain. I just, it was, I just assumed it was from all the stress, but it would be, when it became so severe that I couldn't hardly get out of bed, I went to see a doctor. They did an ultrasound, and it showed that I had cysts on both my ovaries. The doctor prescribed a drug that was known to shrink the cysts, but was also used for infertility. The drug was called Clomid. I became pregnant. On a weekend when I was just about to enter my fifth month, my husband was working under a car in our driveway, and I was in a back bedroom. I heard him say my name, but when I got up to see where he was, he was not in the house. He had an engine hoisted above him, and the hydraulics were failing, lowering the engine onto his chest. He couldn't breathe. When I realized what had happened, I began to crank the lever on that lift to bring the engine up. It took all my strength, and as I did this, I began to bleed. I was having a miscarriage. I was devastated. After it was all over, the guilt and the blame that I felt was overwhelming. I felt guilty because I was relieved that I had lost the baby. My husband didn't want a child, and we were fighting about it constantly. I blamed him because he put me in a position to choose his life over the life of our unborn child. Years later, I changed doctors, and he requested my medical records. When he read my file, he told me that I had been carrying twins. The thought of children had never entered my mind prior to this. In the midst of a troubled and abusive marriage, it was all I could do to keep my sanity. But suddenly, I was faced with this new feeling of motherhood, and I found myself with a deep need to be a mother. After the miscarriage, the OBGYN recommended surgery to remove the cysts. And I hoped that the surgery would clean things up so that I could have a healthy baby and carry it full term. When I came out of the surgery, I was still very groggy. I remember my father holding my hand, crying, and begging God not to leave me without hope. All that I could think was that they had found cancer and I was dying. The next day, the doctor came in and he told me that the surgery was radical. They had taken my left ovary and fallopian tube and about three quarters of my right ovary. He said that I would never have children. I was 23 years old. I knew I was being punished for the life I had been living, and once again I saw God as a vengeful, unforgiving being. My husband and I found ourselves adjusting to this new reality, and he told me that he never really wanted children anyway, so he was fine with it. I found myself returning to the only comfort I could find and began to self-medicate again. And with each time I returned to substance abuse, I increased the amount. There were days when I didn't sleep at all, and sleep deprivation can do frightening things to your mind. I didn't care. I was so lost and so empty. What did life hold for me? And so what if I killed myself with drugs or alcohol? I wasn't worth much anyway. Who would care? 
Years later, I would be diagnosed with clinical depression, which, of course, was exacerbated by substance abuse. I was still functioning, going to work, keeping up a home, and trying desperately to avoid fighting with my husband for fear of being hit. Inside, I was broken and empty, looking for something to fill the hole in my heart. I convinced myself that I never wanted children anyway, and so accepted my infertility. It was about this time that my husband decided to start working an all-night shift. At first, it was fine. We had no time to fight because we rarely saw each other. But then the neighborhood began to be plagued with a prowler. I would hear things in the backyard, and I could not sleep. I was dragging myself to work exhausted and started to take drugs to wake up and drink myself to sleep. I begged my husband to go back on a day shift, but he refused. I shared all of this with a co-worker, a guy I knew from high school, and I began to lean on him as he showed, showed sympathy for me. We began to have an affair. After a while, this only added to my shame and guilt, and I stepped up the substance abuse again. I imagined myself driving my car into a cement wall on the freeway and ending it all. I struggled through every day with my head barely above water. After about a year of this, I began to become very ill. I could hardly keep food down. I was tired all the time, and I finally went to see the doctor knowing that he would tell me I was dying. Instead, he told me that I was pregnant. I remember just staring at him like he was nuts. And then I began to laugh hysterically. I mean hysterically. I'm surprised the man did not have me committed. <laughs> I told him, you must have mixed my urine specimen with somebody else's. I can't get pregnant. He said, well, you figured out a way. I left there in a daze and all the way to the car, I expected a nurse to come running after me and say, wait, wait we made a mistake. But that didn't happen. When I got home with a bottle of prenatal vitamins in my hand and I told my husband that I was pregnant, he was less than happy. Added to that, the doctor took me off work. Because I had had a miscarriage, he didn't want me to take any chances with this pregnancy. My husband was infuriated. But despite his ranting and raving and threats, he didn't hit me once. He even went back to work on a day shift, and I was in motherhood bliss. I remember later on, while I was pregnant with my son, I heard a sermon at Calvary Chapel, and Pastor Chuck said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save mankind. My child was kicking inside my womb, and I remember thinking, I could never give my child up for anything. I was moved by this verse. It was like a pebble being thrown against the door of my heart, encouraging me to open it. But once again, I resisted. When I had my first ultrasound and the doctor read the results to me, he found that my right ovary had completely regenerated and I was no longer infertile. So on January 29, 1978, my son was born. We named him Carl after his father, and suddenly my husband was the doting father. Things started to look up. I went back to work and we decided to sell our house and move to a new community being developed called Rancho Cucamonga. We watched our house being built and we were happy. As we unpacked boxes in our new home, I began to experience nausea, dizziness, and that old familiar tiredness. I was pregnant again. My son was nine months old. Once again, my husband was angry. I was taking birth control pills, but it obviously didn't work. And my husband accused me of not taking my pill, tricking him into getting me pregnant. He didn't want a second child, but I was thrilled. 
Maybe God hadn't forgotten me after all. I continued to work through my second pregnancy, and thanks to friends and family, my son was cared for by people who loved him while I worked to keep my husband happy. On August 5, 1979, when my son was 18 months old, I gave birth to a beautiful 9-pound, 13-ounce baby girl, and I named her Melinda after my great-grandmother. She was 10 days late, and when... And when she was born, she was covered in dark hair. I thought I had given birth to a little monkey. (laughs) Uh, And she was fat and covered with all this hair. It was the funniest thing. Now I've lost my place. Okay. Just as it looked like my life was perfect, I got a call from my father. He told me they had found a lump in my mother's breast. She was to have surgery to determine if it was cancer. And if it was, she would have a mastectomy. I remember praying that morning, begging God for my mother's life, that the surgery would show that she did not have cancer. The doctor came into the waiting room after about six hours of surgery and told us that, it, that the cancer was extensive, that they had to do a radical mastectomy, including lymph nodes and several muscles, that her recovery would be long and painful. Soon after that, my father had a massive heart attack, and for the next year, it was one or another of them in the hospital as we watched them die bit by bit. On May 26, 1980, my father had a massive heart attack and died. My mother collapsed that day and never walked again. I had quit my job to take care of my mother. And on July 25th, nearly two months to the day of my father's death, my mother passed away. I was 27 years old. I felt orphaned. My support network was gone, and I was adrift in a haze of sadness and depression. It was about this time that I discovered that my husband was having an affair. I was so angry. Can you imagine me getting angry after I had already done it to him? Go figure. I was so angry, I called him at work, and I confronted him about it. And he hung up on me, and I didn't see him for two months. I was completely alone with two children, a house payment, and no job. A girlfriend helped me to find assistance to help with food and child care and the house payment until I could get on a, a good paying job. I applied for a job with GTE of California and I was offered a job as a directory assistance operator. My husband ran home as soon as he found out I had a job making good money. That lasted for about six months and then we separated again and I found myself in a dumpy apartment with my two babies. My marriage was over and I was completely alone. Once again, I returned to my old friend, drugs and alcohol. That was my coping mechanism. I was a functioning addict. I had learned that skill from the best. I went to work, paid my child care, fed us, kept clothes on our backs, and when the weekends came and my kids were with their father, I was out with friends bar hopping, meeting guys, and partying. I was lonely and afraid, and I got into one bad relationship after another. Men who wanted one thing, and that certainly didn't include a ready-made family. I watched them come and go, and I told myself that it was no big deal. I just wanted to have a good time, and I moved on to the next one. My ex-husband's abuse didn't end with the divorce. He would call me and tell me that he was going to take me to court and prove me an unfit mother, or that he wanted the pink slip to my father's truck. If I refused, he would break the door down, beat me to the floor, and turn the apartment inside out looking for what he wanted. It was ugly. 
The last time that he hit me, I went to the police and I filed a report. The cop I talked to said, you don't look like you've been beat up to me. I was so mad. I stood up. I was wearing a dress. I stood up and I pulled my dress up and I showed him my my bruised ribs and my bruised back. They went and talked to my husband, my ex-husband, and he said he never hit me. He was smart. He never hit me where it would show. But that was a turning point. He never hit me again. I began to date a guy that was poisonous to me. We had settled our parents' estate, and I received an inheritance that could have been so beneficial to my children and myself. But ever the codependent, I allowed this guy in. He raced motorcycles, and with promises of fame and fortune, I supported him. Through one race after another, bikes, gears, fees, parties, before long my money was gone, and so was he. And so one night, in a drunken stupor, I prayed, God, if you're real, Bring me a man who will love you more than me, or let me spend the rest of my life alone. I got up the next morning, hung over, went off to work, and never gave it another thought. I mean, how serious can a, can a prayer be that's murmured through the haze of alcohol in the middle of the night? Within a few days, I checked my work schedule and saw that I had been scheduled to work the upcoming weekend. My daycare center was closed on weekends, and the ex made it clear he would not babysit on the weekends that he did not have the kids. I had noticed a flyer in the break room advertising babysitting from a teenager named Renee Tippins. I knew her father, Dennis. We had been working together for a little over a year, and I knew that his kids lived with him. So I called her, and I set up a time to go and meet, to meet her and her meet with me and make our arrangements. Little did I know that this sweet 13-year-old girl would become my oldest daughter, that she, that she would teach me to quilt. <laughs> I knew you guys could make me laugh. That she would teach me to quilt. That she would move to Oregon and encourage us to follow her. This is the hardest part. Once I get through this, I'll be okay. That she would someday stand shoulder to shoulder with me and give her heart to Jesus. I didn't bring tissues. I'll have to use my mask. In the weeks ahead, Renee would babysit for me off and on, and Dennis and I got to know each other better, and we began to date. After a period of time, he saw my abuse of drugs and alcohol, and he told me, if you want me in your life, you have to stop it. He was everything the other men in my life were not. He was responsible, self-confident, a good father. He was tall, dark, and handsome, and he was a musician. <sighs> now I can't see. <laughs> So, he was worth it. I gave, the, I gave up the drugs and the alcohol for him. And I fell deeply in love with him, and within eight months, we were married. On March 10, 1984, our wedding day, I left for the church with the girls, and he was at home with the boys. I was terrified that I would walk down the aisle and he would not be there. After all, who would want someone with two kids in tow, right? Instead, I saw my four-year-old son walking down the aisle in front of me, with his little tuxedo trousers puddling at his feet six inches too long. It was perfect. And when I saw the look on Dennis's face when he saw me walk through the door to the sanctuary, that was perfect too. We had the reception at our house, and there was a swing set in the backyard with a very high monkey bar. Someone came and told me that I should go see what my daughter was doing on the swing set. 
I was horrified when I when there she was on the monkey bar in her flower girl dress hanging upside down with her lacy panties for everyone to see. She was always a little tomboy and I loved her for it. Once when she was in elementary school, I got a call from her principal to come down and get her. When I got there, he handed me a note from him that said something to the effect of your child was in a fight at school and I need you to come down here. I'm sending this note home for your signature and we've asked her to bring it back. When I got there, he handed me the note and a very childish pat was scribbled at the bottom. How can you discipline a kid like that? How can you stop long enough to discipline a kid like that? She is a beautiful and accomplished woman, but still has some of that tomboy left in her. She hunts with her husband and bagged an elk this last year. I'd like to say that the six of us jumped on Dennis's white steed and rode off into the sunset. Really? (laughs) But that would be a lie. We worked hard to blend a family that had been hurt and broken in so many ways. I found myself struggling with wanting to self-medicate whenever the tough times came, and we argued or the kids screamed, you're not my mom. My addictions had not left, but they were laying in wait for me to fall off the wagon and risk everything again. The office that Dennis and I worked together in was preparing to close, and they had made arrangements for us to split into three three groups and go to three different offices. Dennis would go to Whittier, a suburb of Los Angeles, and I was sent to Westminster on the coast near the beach. The drive took me past Anaheim Stadium every day. And that July, the Marquis said that the Billy Graham crusade would be there for four nights. Now, growing up, if Billy Graham was in town, I don't care what condition my father was in, we were going to go see Billy Graham. So I thought, my kids are going to go see Billy Graham. So that night, I went home, threw him in the car, and off we went. That night, pebbles were, thro- were again thrown at, my, thrown at the door of my heart. And once again, I fought the urge to open the door. But my heart was not the only heart there that night. And as we drove home, my 15-year-old daughter, Renee, said, I really wanted to go down on that field tonight. I had made a lot of mistakes in my life, but I knew this was an eternal mistake, and I was going to correct it. The next night, Renee and I went back to Anaheim Stadium. These are good tears. (laughs) And together we went down and gave our hearts to Jesus. Because of that decision. (laughs) Thank you. Because of that decision, my grandsons were raised in a Christian home. They married Christian women, and my great-grandchildren are being raised in a Christian home. Five of my grandchildren, five, five of my grandchildren are being raised in a Christian home. The enemy of our souls is not done with us and has shown up many times to try and destroy our marriage and our family. Our oldest son had begged us to go to let him go live with his mom in Reno. We fought to keep him with us, but his rebellion was tearing our family apart, and so we let him go. Once he was out of our home, we knew little about what was going on, and we heard very little from him. During that time, he met a girl, and she became pregnant. They were 16 years old. They came to live with us and said they wanted to get married. We helped them to get married, and soon they were pregnant again and moved back to Reno. There was very little contact from them. Up until 1992, we got a call from our son, and he told us that his wife was in a women's shelter in Nevada, in Reno, Nevada, with his two children, and that she was going to put them up for adoption. We told him to contact her and tell her that we wanted the children. He said he had no way of contacting her 
all contact had to come through her. We knew that we had to somehow get a hold of her before our grandchildren went into the system in Nevada and we would have a huge legal battle on our hands to get those kids. And the only thing I knew to do was to start calling homeless women's hotlines in Reno, Nevada. I prayed that somehow I could get a message to my daughter-in-law. When I called and I told the woman that I was trying to reach my daughter-in-law, Eileen Tippins, she shut me down. She abruptly told me she would not give me any information on anyone in a shelter in Reno. I said, no, I don't, I don't want you to give me information about her. I just want to get a message to her. My husband and I know that she's planning to put our grandchildren up for adoption, and we want them. I gave her my phone number, and she said, I'll see what I can do. An hour later, Eileen called me. She said that the woman that I spoke to had been manning the hotline that day. It was her personal social worker. We raised the kids as our own. All of our children at some point in their teenage years has rebelled against us and God. There's brokenness in our family that may never be repaired. But God has been faithful, and the anchor holds. There has been such blessing. Becoming a grandmother has been one of those the most precious and miraculous gifts God has given me. If you have not experienced watching your grandchild be, be born, I highly recommend it. There's a bond that takes place at the moment you see them gulp their first breath and cry. When you lean down and kiss your daughter's sweaty forehead and say, good job, sweetheart. I was not blessed to witness the birth of my great-grandchildren, but have been able to hold them within hours of their birth and smell the breeze of heaven on them. It's been 36 years since I've come to know a heavenly father that my earthly father never really understood. A forgiving and gracious father who sees my mistakes and loves me in spite of them. A father who has lifted me from a life of sin and rebellion and buried that sin in the deepest part of the sea, never to be remembered again. I am a new creation, and looking back, I hardly recognize that other woman. But when I look at her, I see Jesus walking beside her, through every bad decision, using them to break me so that I might someday recognize the one who's able to repair that brokenness and restore to me the years that the locusts have eaten. In the past ten years, I've lost my brother, my little sister, to cancer. It was hard, but they knew Jesus, and so I know I will see them again. Dennis and I came to Calvary Mac ten years ago, and I joined a ladies' Bible study right away. I met Marlene Smith, and it was like I had known her all my life. She embraced me as part of the ladies' ministries, and I was so humbled when she asked me to lead a group in Bible study. This opened the door for me to get to know the precious women of this church. I listened to them tell of their struggles, and this has moved me to start a mentoring ministry. I meet with a few of these precious women, and we share life, laughter, food, prayer, and the Word of God. What a privilege this has been. I would never have envisioned my life like this 40 years ago. I have watched this church explode with new faces, and I pray that the mentoring ministry will continue to grow. However, not all of my life is rosy. I have children who have chosen to rebel against God, and they too have their own addictions and demons. But God is faithful, and I know that they too will hear the still small bo- his still small voice one day and fa- face the decision to listen or turn their backs. I will pray for them, for their salvation, until I breathe my last. And I've told them, I'm waiting for you on the other side. Don't disappoint me. If any of this story has struck a chord with any of you and you would like someone to pray with you, 
please don't leave here tonight without doing that. If anything has moved you tonight, don't walk away from it. Thank you. You're so sweet. <laughs> You're such a big old baby. No. Crocodile. <laughs> and all the time I've known you, I would never call you a baby. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Can we just give her another round of applause? Thank you. I love you guys. You have made my life so full of joy. I love you. And we love you. And if you don't know her yet, you need to. And you need to be in her circle and get in this grandma love. <laughs> you deal. And I just want to thank you um, for being here. We we have a couple things to sort of share at the end. But before I do that, we have one more song. And I just have to tell you that Miss McKenna wrote this song. So this is an original. You get to hear it for the first time. You're reckless soul, tripping and wandering. You laugh in the face of grace. You can feel death slowly overtake you. Its fingers grasp around your neck. You're suffocating. You try to drown it out, but the waves crash over your head.
Girl, you are amazing. I wanted to give a special thank you. Usually when we're inside, we have what's called the man cave. I don't even know what to call this. This is not a cave, but it's the man something. And um, our pastor, Brian, put all of this together this afternoon. Everything. The lights, the chords, the sound, all. Yeah. Yeah. Not like he has anything else to do. Or has anything else on his plate. So this could not have happened without you. And thank you so much. And thank you for recording it and doing all the tech stuff that I have no idea how to do. So we really, really appreciate that. And Pat, thank you. Thank you for putting all of your energy into this. <laughs> of course I'm going to allow you. <laughs> 
she had this all ready for April and then just went on hold and has stayed so patient through this whole process. And I really appreciate it. And thank you, Marlene, for coming to introduce her and McKenna for singing and for all of you for coming out here and kind of trying out this outdoor thing with us. It's new. We don't have all the kinks worked out yet, but we really hope we can do this again if you'd like to. Thank you so much for coming. And I would just like to close us right now. I just want to pray for all of you, for everybody, for everybody's story, for everybody's season. So Father, I am just so grateful that we get to be out here and the temperature is perfect and the lighting's amazing. And we're surrounded by your trees and we are in your house. And both of those songs reminded us that we just get to come and be with you and that you are good and that you've never abandoned us and that you're here. And Lord, I know there are women here that are coming from all different chapters of their life stories. And so whether that chapter is just the bottom of the bottom or the high of the high, or it's confusing, or it's distant, or it's amazing, or it's so traumatic, whatever it is, Lord, you know exactly the story is going on right now. And so I just want to ask for your protection, for your healing, for your love, for your peace, for all of the amazing gifts that you offer for each one of these women and for all of the women that they might have thought of when listening to this story, that there are other women who aren't here tonight, but who will be listening to this recording later. And I thank you that you've spoken through Pat and let this story, the story that you wrote, you're the author, let it touch every woman here in some way, because all of our stories are valuable and we are here to be real women sharing real stories with real hope. And that hope is you. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Well, ladies, thank you so much for tuning in to this 25th episode of the Story Night podcast. I hope you'll join us again next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com women. Mm-hmm.